0: Jonathan, I was thinking I was thinking about changing up the intro music since it's Christmas. Just doing a, a special one time only Christmas intro music. Uh do you have any any suggestions? I think I know what I want to do. I think I want to use Merry Christmas from the Family by Robert Earl Keane But that's that's a very Oklahoma thing to do. Do you have any suggestions?
1: I like the Pogues, a fairy tale of New York.
0: I've never heard. Is that, that a song Christmas I... song?
1: No, I've never heard of that. Oh, go go Google that. It's good. It's it's kind of like eighties punk classic. Very dark. <laughs> a very dark Christmas song. <laughs> well, it's got you know it's got great lines like uh, "You're an old slut on junk" and <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> talking about being stuck on the drunk tank. So, you know, but it's charming. So it's got its charm. So that that's that's one of my Christmas jams. I gotta say. That's that's disturbing, and it says a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a classic. They actually play it on the radio here. I think I think one of the big cultural differences I've noticed about Christmas music is uh, British Christmas music tends to be very depressing and melancholic, and American Christmas music tends to be kind of like happy clappy. I'd say. So. What do you, you th- Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I think a it's the two cultures. The the British aren't much for sentiment in the way the Americans are. I'd say, and uh, I think like Britain, like I, to be honest, like this time of year we're getting eight hours of sunlight. It's pretty dark and it's rainy all the time. So it's also a, you don't get any snow. <laughs> so it's just it's a bit like this time of year is actually pretty depressing as it is. Like definitely if you suffer from seasonal effectiveness disorder or i don't i don't think i suffer from that but i definitely want to sleep all the time and just drink so
0: <laughs> I, think right. that's,
1: I think that's kind of like transferred over into the into the christmas music too
0: so in england it's just let's get this over with so we can play the boxing day epl matches is that pretty much pretty much the sentiment
1: i think it's it's you know christmas here is just have a big feast get drunk i think presenting is a little like further down the list it's not as is not as much gift giving there's still gifts given but it's not as big a thing it's a bit closer to thanksgiving with like darkness and rain so all right yeah.
0: so merry christmas <laughs> let's merry get this christmas, party everybody. Merry christmas
1: everybody let's get this party started <laughs>
0: brought her new boyfriend he was a Mexican We didn't know what to think of him tell us like Police Navida Police Navida
1: Brother Kim brought his kids with him
0: hey everybody welcome to A very special Christmas edition of the Rocks Across the Pond Curling Podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me from Southampton, England, where they celebrate Christmas by getting drunk and praying for sunlight is our very own Professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you
1: enjoying this Christmas season? Uh, It's all right. It's, uh, you know... It's Christmas, man. You just got to relax, have a nice drink, chill out, get together with friends and family. So that's the plan. Did you ask for any curling stuff for Christmas? You know, no. Well, actually, I I need a new stopwatch. So if anyone (laughs) wants to send me a stopwatch, I won't say no. But I'm kind of like at that age where uh, it's not just that it's like giving, not receiving. Because mostly I kind of – I actually genuinely do get more joy in like giving – uh, gifts to my nieces and nephews and stuff. Then, uh, if I want something, I'll just go buy it. So I don't really need any presents. I'm pretty much the same. What did you? So you
0: grew up playing juniors. Did you get any? Did you ask? Were you asking for curling stuff when you were growing up? When you were a lad there in in Montreal, or?
1: Oh yeah, I remember. I got. Uh, I think my favorite Christmas curling related gift that I ever like remember getting was the Duke Eight Ender. Oh, That's yeah. Like 17, 18, 10-inch horsehair offset. Ah, that was sweet. That's a, That's that was classic. a great broom, classic broom. And uh, from, uh, growing up in Montreal, the big junior spiel was the Christmas Bond spiel, which whoever thought this up was brilliant. So it was like December 27th through 29th every year at Town of Mount Royal uh, Curling Club. And uh, it basically be like yeah, 30, 40 junior teams playing they kind of in different categories but kind of a clever strategy because it gets the kids out of the house over mm-hmm. christmas you just go curl all the time the parents just drop them off in the rink for three straight days everyone's out of school good way to spend the break a little bit uh so i kind of like that spiel a lot growing up
0: all right anything anything else other than the broom like where shoes anything like that like what's a good i don't know what, 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 do you, what what's a good curling thing to to give someone uh on christmas like what for the uh for the aspiring curler in someone's life what would be what's a good curling christmas present
1: well it depends what you so actually i also remember getting a book that i think is awesome it's probably out of print now but i think i think you actually borrowed at one point in time called burned by the rock i actually asked for that this
0: christmas we'll see if i get it but it was on my list
1: it's like, so it's a great, great book. It basically ran through all the 80s curls. I think I got that like when I was 18, 19. And it was kind of like, you know, all like the ranch and uh, like it ends with this young kid, Kevin Martin coming on the scene and messing everything up. But it's basically like Al Hackner, the ranch, like all the old party, you know, win the bar and the spiel kind of guys from the late 70s through the 80s uh, and had a lot of great stories and kind of a lot of good history in that book. So I actually like, and that's actually a, a gift that I still use. I think. Uh, I think one of the things is cause most of my family members, in fact, none of my family members are curlers is they know I curl, but they don't quite know what to get me. So often I'll get like really like, thoughtful, but not quite the right thing. Kind of curling gifts. So it'll be like, Oh, here's a mini curling stone or curling theme thing. I got a curling theme cheese cutting board one year, which is nice. I still use it, but, uh, I think it depends on what you want. For me with equipment, I'm kind of super specific in what I want. Yeah. So again, it's kind of a case of if I want to, if I want new shoes, I'm going to go and buy the shoes exactly as I want them. Uh, and same with like most other equipment, because I think a non-curler is going to struggle a bit with stuff. But actually when Hardline was coming out, because my mom lives right close to where the Hardline headquarters are. Like she actually was like early on in the Hardline trend and got me a Hardline head like the first year it came out. So I was actually the first person in England to have a Hardline Brush head, kind of the illegal cheat. I didn't oh, figure nice. out how to use it to cheat, unfortunately. I was too, it's not clever enough to unlock the the uh, scratching powers of the head, but that was kind of a cool gift that I got a few years back.
0: Uh, you're also not nearly as athletically gifted as the front end that Brad Gushu has. So that's, that makes a little sense there.
1: That helps too, I imagine. <laughs>
0: Well, that's awesome. Your mom was uh, your mom was a curling early adi- early adapter, and uh, I agree with you. As someone who grew up in Oklahoma and now lives in Virginia, I don't really ask for equipment because I don't trust anyone else to buy it. So it's kind of the same way. I just ask. I need I need a new curling broom. Can you just give me the cash to buy it, and I will buy it because I know exactly what I want. Well, I I still have not curled since September, as we still do not have ice here here in Richmond. Have you curled any lately?
1: We have a really intermittent schedule, and so I haven't curled. I haven't played a game in the last three weeks. I've been to the rink a bit, just to kind of practice myself to keep myself sharp because we've got a we've got a set of playdowns coming up in the new year, and uh, to get the team that I'm coaching in Finland into good shape. So I've been to the rink about three times in the last few weeks, just practicing and coaching. But no, no games, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The most uh, something exciting did happen, though. We met uh, the curling club of Virginia got to meet Tyler George. He came to Richmond last weekend, so we got to hang out with him. We didn't have we didn't have ice that we that we could use because of hockey and a figure skating competition. We're taking up <laughs> the two rinks that exist here in Richmond. But so we took Tyler George. To a shuffleboard bar? All right. <laughs> it was the first time I played shuffleboard. He he actually did not play, but a few of us did. So it was the first time that I played shuffleboard and I kind of so, get...
1: so it was just like Tyler George and like 20 people from your club going to a bar?
0: Basically, that's yeah, that's that's pretty <laughs> much it.
1: Did anyone at the bar realize there was like an Olympic gold
0: medalist in the house? Yeah, a few people did. People, yeah cool. a few people came over and talked to him got their got their picture with the medal the staff got their picture with him with the medal so that was cool
1: and so now you've seen two of the five gold medals i have is your like plan to to touch all five of them
0: i mean it has to be now now that i'm 2 fifths of the way there the goal has to be to to see all five of
1: them right and then what happens when you get all five is like some it almost seems like the plot of the Avengers and Affinity Stones or something. Like,
0: that. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I get a superpower or, you know, Richmond, we have a lot of breweries. So they have a brewery crawl, and if you get if you go to five of them, you get a hat. So I don't know. Do I get a hat if I touch all five all five US gold medals?
1: You get something. I, I think your New Year's resolution is to touch the other three gold medals. I'm setting it for you. It's my challenge for you for twenty for twenty nineteen.
0: That's gonna be difficult unless Tyler George brings the other three medals with him if he visits Richmond again. Uh, I don't think to, I, don't, I don't think I'm getting to I'm not getting to Duluth anytime soon.
1: Uh, you just get to Duluth, be a bit of a stalker, <laughs> hang out at the Duluth Curling Club. <laughs> I mean, that's the easiest
0: way to do it would be to just go to Duluth. <laughs>
1: ah it's a plan it's a life goal right
0: (laughs) yeah but i'm not i'm not getting there anytime soon so last time we talked and we talked for two hours about curling which thank you to anyone who listened to all of that things have you know things have slowed down it's christmas and new year's things kind of slow down in the curling world as they you know, the fall season's over, and the next step for most most teams is playdowns. But there were two tournaments out in the Far East. The Qinghai International Curling Elite was held in China, and that city's kind of in the highlands. You know, you, you look at a map, and there's that big plateau. Once you get into Western China, that's, kind of, that's where this city is. So they brought in a bunch of... Teams from around the world to play. Uh, a few of the the Chinese teams there, and they play. They took one from each from a bunch of different countries. Kelsey Rock went and represented the represented Canada on the women's side, and Matt Dunstone actually went over and represented Canada on the men's side. And Dunstone wound up winning the men's event, and Alina Kovaleva from Russia won the women's event. And then fast forward to this weekend, and Russia took another Far East tournament, the Karizawa International Championship, which has a 20-year history. This tournament's been around for a long time. A bunch of big teams have played there. On the women's side, this time it was Anna Sidorova winning in the final. On the men's side, we also had a Canadian champion, just like we saw in Qinghai. This time it was Reed Carruthers who went over to Japan after... Not doing so well at the Canada Cup, and not doing much better in the next weekend's Grand Slam event. Jonathan, he went a long way for a slump buster, and he he got it. They went undefeated and won the Karazawa tournament. Um, I don't think I've ever flown halfway around the world for a slump buster, but you know that's a long way to go, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, and so it looks like the the lineups now set as Reed throwing, skipping, and throwing last rocks, and Mike at third. Right, that's what they did in the last few weeks. It looks like so. That's what
0: they did in Karazawa. They had Mike. They had Mike at fourth and skipping, at the Canada Cup, and they went over. And you know that team's body language wasn't great. You could tell that they were having trouble figuring things out. Things weren't going their way. There were picks. They had one game at the Canada Cup against Brad Jacobs, where they were trying. They they had to steal to win, and they played the. They could not have played the tenth end more perfectly. And then Brad Jacobs just makes two ridiculous shots to beat them. So yeah, some some of it was bad luck, but everything went their way in Japan. Uh, Swept through swept through the field to win. Uh, in the final against Yuta Matsumura, they cracked four in the first and then kind of held on. The more interesting game was the game that I actually got to see last night. I stayed up till past one in the morning here on the East Coast to watch Team Schuster in the third place game against Masaki Eway's team. And the Eway team has two players from last year's Worlds team that Japan sent to Las Vegas for Men's Worlds. Uh, including their lead Go Aoki, who threw fourth at Worlds last year and made some ridiculous shots and now he's now he's playing lead for the E Way team and the E Way team, they're shot makers and they made that a game the whole way. They cracked the only deuce of the whole game to tie it in seven and then Schuster beat him in the eighth. But they were a couple of ends where they got in trouble and just would not peel. That it and though that's what cost him the game. Schuster got a steal midway through the game that really turned the tide of that one. But they I mean, they're shot makers, and I think we're gonna see them when you go to World Junior B's in Loya, Finland here, the first of the year. But I mean they're they're a young team. They make shots, they just need to figure out strategy and figure out when they need to bail and when they need to peel it, peel things away. But they're gonna be really good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing them. I don't think, I don't even know. Are they, they're not in our pool. I don't think. So I know we got Korea instead. So we w- would only see them if we make the playoff round, but uh, be curious to see how they do. I think they will be one of the favorites to go up this year. So mm-hmm. Well, they,
0: I remember looking, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about your upcoming trip to Finland uh, last year, they kind of, swept through their pool and then lost in quarterfinals last year at the world junior B's, And it's mostly the same team back this year. It looks like, so yeah, they should be, they should be the favorites on the men's side in Finland. So we we've seen big tournaments in, especially in China this year, they had that China open earlier this year. They've got this tournament in Qinghai, And then the Karazawa tournament's been around forever. The WCT is starting a tour in Japan. You know, they're getting big teams out there. I think one of the best things that happened with Reed Carruthers and John Schuster being out in Japan is. People got to learn about Japanese curling fan art Twitter, which is really fun. And those guys, <laughs> those guys were retweeting a lot of it while they were out there in Japan. Uh, Japanese curling fan art is awesome, and you should definitely find those guys on Twitter. They post, uh, they post some really great artwork, and it's really fun to see. So curling has spread to the Far East, and where do you? Sp- I mean, where do you see? things going in that region as the WCT gets going in Japan and China is obviously dumping a ton of money into their program to get ready for the next Olympics that they're hosting. Right?
1: Yeah. So I think obviously China's going to boom like it like the lead up to 2022. Uh, like anytime a country hasn't hosted winter Olympics, that country takes a big step up the world rankings. We saw it with Russia. We saw it with Korea. China's already, you know, easily a top 10 world team now world country now. So it's, it'll pro it's aiming to medal in China in, uh, in 2022. So uh, the money, the resources, the talent being thrown out, it's going to be huge. I think I'm more curious about does Korea fall back? Like what happens once the Olympics are over, it looks like they've had a bit of a, a funding and association controversy there, especially with the the garlic girls. So you know, does that does that mean Korea is going to take a step back, or does the fact they medaled in the Olympics create a bit more grassroots support for the game, and so it sticks there too? Uh, I think Japan and China for sure are going to see the strength, and then if Korea can hold the level, and then a lot of these newer curling countries step up, you could have a pretty strong legion emerging there. So, like in our group of the World Bees, which we'll again, we'll get to in a moment, we're playing Chinese Taipei, which is a new new entrant to. The World Junior B's this year, so that's that's another country joining the rankings, if you will. So cu- I'm curious to see: does the sport spread? Does con- do countries like Qatar and Kazakhstan that are also part of the region? Do they start adding uh, more depth in their countries, start building facilities, and then at that moment is the game the game really will go global? So,
0: yeah the the Garlic Girls haven't been on tour, but the Kim. Minji team has, and they've had a lot of success and they're a very young team that I think they just aged out of juniors and now they're out performing well on tour. So funding may be an issue to, to keep them playing against the best on a regular basis, but that team's got a lot of promise. And I think they, I think they won PACCs, right? I think that's right. Yeah. And
1: yep. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is getting big name events in the Asia-Pacific region that attract attracts like top 10 tour teams is also good for the growth of the sport in that region too, right? Even in Canada, I kind of saw this back in the 90s, early 2000s, where if say a major cash spiel went under in a certain region, it was kind of a big issue in, in parts of Quebec and parts of Northern Ontario, You'd actually that would actually have a negative impact on the competitive curling in that area because that meant the big, the big hackners, the wrenches, those guys weren't coming through. Uh, so being, being able to host events that bring the Gooshus, the Carruthers, the you know, the cooeys out uh, is actually good for the growth of sport in that area because like some of the local competitive teams, they get to play top, top competition, and that only is going to make them better in the long term.
0: Yeah, we're, we're already seeing China do that with the two tournaments earlier with them. Gushu went over to the China Open earlier. I think Jennifer Jones was in that tournament too. And then this year bringing over bringing over Dunstone and Kelsey Rock to Ching Hai. Obviously, they're trying to get as much competition over there for these tournaments in addition to sending their players over to Canada. So we are about to turn the calendar. It's been a heck of a 2018, especially here in the U S obviously with the Olympics, which seems like a long time ago, but that was in this calendar year. What, what are some things that we need to watch for here as we get into 2019? What's your number one thing that you're going to watch, at least in terms of the tour teams?
1: Well, I mean, I think once we flip over to the new year, at least in the North American context, uh, we switch from the gold season. So the the cash spiels uh, over to the glory season, right? The playdowns for national championships. So to me, the big question is how many, can these teams show up? Not to say when it counts, because obviously winning slams and winning cash counts, but can they show up when the, you know, the big playdown events get going, right? And, there's lots of times in Canadian curling history where a teams come out on fire, won all the gold, dominated the entire season, and then they just can't put it together come play-down season. They, they kind of get bounced early in a play-down process, or they choke in the provincial final. So the big question is who can maintain momentum, and maybe what happens with some of those teams that, that haven't had a great first start of the season? Can they actually turn it on and peak right now?
0: There's one team on the women's side and one team's on the men's side that were really good early on. Haven't played as well lately, and now you kind of look at them going into going into their provincial playdowns and whether or not they can come through and make the Briar and the Scotties. I think it's John Epping on the men's side and Kerry Anderson on the women's side. Both of those teams came out on fire, and now you know Anderson's still playing well and making finals. They just haven't been able to take that next step, but they're, they are a new team. The Epping team, you know, that's mostly a new team and they clicked right away, but haven't been playing well lately. Meanwhile, Glenn Howard, who's <laughs> obviously seen, obviously seen a briar or two keeps chugging <laughs> along, keeps making playoffs. You know, he's not necessarily winning fi- winning finals uh, in terms of slams. He's won a couple of finals as a part of the world curling tour, but not necessarily at the slams, but he keeps qualifying uh, in pretty much every event that he enters. So who's going to come out at out of Ontario, the, the up and comers who had a good Briar last year, or the guy that we're used to seeing in the Briar Glenn Howard.
1: Yeah, I think that's, so that'll be the interesting one. They're obviously on a collision course in Ontario. Uh, and the, the record for Epic, like Epping's done this many, many times in his career, right? Like I think, I actually saw Glenn Howard give a talk at a curling club. It's got to be 12, 11, 12 years ago. And someone said, who's the the next big thing in Ontario curling? Kind of A, implying Glenn Howard was old and (laughs) about to be done. This is 12 (laughs) years ago. And B, just curious, like after him, who? And Glenn's response was John Epping. He said, John Epping's got all the shots. And obviously Epping's kind of established himself as an elite tour player since then. But the thing that's hilarious to me is that that Howard still like 12 years later has Epping's number right they, they've they've matched several times in Ontario provincial finals and Epping's kind of notorious for not being able to get over that hump he finally did last year so mm-hmm. question 1 is does finally breaking through in Ontario mean that Epping can now hold on to the crown or does Howard want to you know uh, go one or two more rounds right and kind of i every single year the last 4 or 5 years i thought this is probably Howard's last year and In most of those years, he's kind of surprised my expectations at least. So this year, I'm not counting him out. I actually say, I think you're right, Howard's probably a slight favorite over Epping if we're just going on recent form. He's playing with
0: his son kind of reinvigorated him, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's A, it's playing with his son. B, I mean, he's got a young, he's built built a good young team around him, right? Like like the guys he was playing with, like uh, Richard Hart, Wayne Madar are both basically I think done just because of injuries so uh it's it's Howard skipping a good young team and you know he's he's got to be, he's still the smartest strategist in the game is he even against the elites he's probably still worth one one and a half points him stepping on the ice and he's got the smoothest delivery in curling so it, being old doesn't necessarily hurt that and he's he's got a touch game so it's not like the Kevin Martin power game where you know, you get into your 40s and 50s and, and that explosive ability starts to decline, He's he's got a game that can actually age well, so to speak. So, uh, you know, he's he could keep going as long as he wants. Like we saw Al Hackner a few years ago in his 60s get to a Northern Ontario final against Jacobs with, with a yeah. senior men's team. This is Howard, late 50s now, but with a young team around him. So he's got the sweeping, he's got the power up front. So yeah, he could keep going for a while, I imagine. As long as he wants to, as long as he wants to keep making briars, right? I think a. As long as he wants to, I think he's got a team that will stick with him. They're, it's not, you know, I think a. Some of the older guys he was playing with just their bodies broke down, quite frankly, right? And so they couldn't they couldn't keep doing it. Well, one uh, of them was a one of them it was a ski accident, though, right? <laughs> a few years accident, ago, <laughs> but it's also like you know, I, I dislocated my shoulder early 30s and tore my labrum. And I remember the thing the doctor said to me as well, if you were young, implying like under 30, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's like, ah, we, we just, you know, we wouldn't, we just rehab it and go. But he's like, the problem is once you get over 30, your body heals slower and joints are kind of less pliable. So we had to do full surgery. And I think, I think it's even true for someone like Wayne Medall, like a serious injury in your forties is very different from a serious injury in your twenties. The body heals more slowly. You got to deal with a lot more complications. So I think yeah, it was it was a fluke accident, but there's no doubt that you get to a certain age, and you know the recovery process and the rehab process probably become a grind too. So I think age was definitely a factor there. And with uh, with Richard Hart, it sounded like his knees just went. He got like knee arthritis or something, which is like super common too. Like you know, I've seen a lot of just even club players get into their 40s, 50s, bad knee injury, and sometimes they just decide it's easier to hang it up than to go through you know, pretty serious surgery and rehab.
0: And then the Anderson team, they started out not just on fire, but they, it took them a while before they lost. It seemed like won a bunch of early cash spiels, including a big tournament in Oakville. They won the Stu Sells Oakville uh, in addition to some other tournaments early on, but that has not translated to wins at slams yet. So far, the two the four women's slams, you saw Anna Hasselborg win the first two and then Rachel Homan win the second two. And Anderson's team, you know, they've lost they've lost two high profile finals in a row now. Is that is, is that easier to deal with when you're a new team than when you're when you're an established team?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. Like I think well, A, I think sometimes you've got to lose a big one before you win a big one. We see that like all the time in curling, especially like in Briars and Scotties, the team loses a final and then they, they, they actually punch through a year or two later. Uh, to me, I guess I read the Einerson season is a, a little bit differently. Like they're clearly demolishing teams below the top 10. I think I would probably put them as still the fourth best women's team in the world after Hasselberg, Holman, and Jones, but they're not quite That's at true. that tier yet, right? And so of, of any team out there likely to punch through that tier in the next year, my money's obviously on Einerson. But, you know, if there's a team they remind me of, it's the Mike McEwen team from like 2015-2014 season, right? 2014-2015 season, right? They came out on fire Uh kind of like basically we're destroying everyone in the cash season, cash circuit kind of right after the last quad. Uh, and then, you know, McEwen lost a lot of big finals over the next four years and never quite, never quite got over the hump. So some teams never do get over that final hump. Uh, and some teams obviously do. And so the question, you know, like, like Cooey was a perennial, perennial also ran until 2010. Like he kept losing, you know, Alberta finals to Kevin Martin. Uh, finally punched through and then kind of never looked back. So like for them, that's the question is can they've got the talent. They're certainly in the conversation, but can they finally put it together in big finals when it matters? And so for them, it's can they win Manitoba and then can they win a Yeah.
0: They're also in a province that is just a bloodbath on the women's side. Uh, It's kind of, it's kind of funny looking at, the, you know, the road to the Briar and the road to the Scotties, in on the men's side, they've really spread out in just about every province. Every bigger province has two teams that, you know, could win could win playdowns. And then you look at the women's side, and you know, mainly it's Alberta, Manitoba, and Ontario have a glut of really good teams, and then most of the other provinces. Have one team that's pretty solid that has a pretty good chance of making the Scotties, but you know, looking at the two big provinces, Manitoba and Alberta, it is going to be tough to come out of both of those both of those provinces.
1: Yeah, those those are going to be tough. Uh, I, I think you know, Holman's probably the prohibitive fa- favorite in Ontario, although she has been known to to cough it up in the odd Ontario women's final over the years. But with, she's also got the wild card game fallback position. So I'd be yeah. stunned if Homa doesn't make the Scotties. And I, I think actually for Ontario, she's pretty strong because some of the other contenders aren't in province anymore. Uh, uh, you know, Manitoba is going to be interesting, right? Cause you don't have Jones in there. You do have Einerson, who's probably above the rest of the competition or field, but certainly mm-hmm. Flaxian and, and, uh, flurry are gonna have something to say about that so it's not gonna darcy
0: to robertson well. she's the, the robertson team has been solid as well
1: yeah they're solid like like they'll they'll be in the conversation but again it's that's one of those teams that always does well against say tier two but when they come to the tier one they're there but they're not i i have a hard time seeing them running the week the, the table all week in a manitoba provincial but maybe that's just me and then the men's side, again, like we said,
0: most provinces have you know two teams that are really good. Even Manitoba, which is usually, you know, usually the Viterra is just similar to the women's side of things, just a bloodbath. But really it's it's Caruthers and Gunner, and then kind of a step down, and then you get the teams like Braden Calvert, who's who was in juniors not long ago, the Willie Lyburns of the world? You know, there's kind of a step down there. You know, you, anything can happen in a playdown situation, but you have a pretty good idea that the final there is going to be Gunner and Carruthers.
1: Yeah, and that that'll be interesting, I think, because Carruthers has has underperformed, right? If any teams kind of exceeded their expectations, it's the Einerson rank, but the the Carruthers one to me, if, I think, being by their own standards, I they admit they've had a pretty shaky start to the season. So can they put it together now? Can they, they they should on paper, I think on on paper, they're stronger than Gunnlikson, but Gunnlikson's good. And I think actually Gunners had a slightly better season just given the, the shakiness of the Carruthers team. So uh, I'll be curious to see if Carruthers actually can turn it around now in the second half of the season. Yeah. And they, especially now that Reed's throwing,
0: throwing, Basically, calling the game for himself and throwing the last rocks that, you know, they had success there in in Karazawa. And that, you know, everyone kind of expected that team to come out like a house of fire and dominate, especially among the Manitoba teams. But I think that's a team with Reed and Mike kind of having to mix styles there. Uh, I think that's the team that's going to follow your your performance wheel uh, yes. on, on more of a long, on more of a longer track. I think that's a team that you know they're struggling this year, but in two years, I think that's the team that's really starting to perform.
1: Yeah, I, I think that you know and you can think back to Cooey's team last cycle. Like they got to the Briar mm-hmm. their first year, but to be honest, they were a mess. Like like they they were notorious for oh, yeah. talking all the time, but they were just bickering. They had the weird. Mark Kennedy throwing thirds rocks, but sweeping and Langer in the house, and I it was it was a bit weird. And in many ways, the the Carruthers team's a bit like that. I think, like personally, I think that Reed is a skip and throwing last stone works really well. Like he he may Mike is probably the better shot maker, but I oh, think yeah. Carruthers is perhaps the steadier hand at skip. You know, and the the real question is, can Mike? turn himself from a skip into a third except the fact that he's the vice not the leader anymore and then actually commit himself to becoming the best throw on the planet like I think I think there's you know if he if he decided that's what he wants to do for the next quad and kind of adopt that Mark Kennedy kind of role then I could see that team catching fire but if you have this weird internal power dynamic going on over who's the dot who's the the alpha dog on the team so to speak uh that team could be broken up really quickly too.
0: I don't know. You seen in what you see in public, obviously is the tip of the iceberg on what's really going on behind the scenes. But you follow, if, if you follow those guys on Instagram or Twitter, it seems like they do really enjoy being around one another. They're just trying to figure it out on the ice.
1: Yeah. But that can also just be, it Could just be like little subtle things, right? Like it could just be strategic preference. Like if, if mm-hmm. if mike is questioning reed's calls does that affect how reed calls a game like little things like that that if mike has a different strategic preference than reed and reed's uh, that that's maybe throwing like putting a little bit of doubt in the back of his mind that can affect performance right if it's if they're not comfortable with the role they're playing even if they're bottling it up that can become an issue right it's a lot of these subtle things that that may not pop up on the TV screen that may be kind of in the back of people's heads going on behind the scenes that, that could be an issue, even if you are the best of friends, right? Sometimes sometimes being best friends doesn't necessarily turn to being best teammates either.
0: And then along the same lines, uh, Ryan Fry is returning to Team Jacobs. Once we get into the new year, they're going to play in the Canadian Open. He'll be back on the team for the Canadian Open and then they'll go into... Northern Ontario playdowns. that team played really well without him. How do you think, I mean, do you, do you think it'll be, do you think he's going to come into the back end of the team seamlessly or do you think there might be, there might be issues there after they've had success with, with the two subs that they had?
1: I think to me, that's the most interesting story. And I think it'll be both an external story and an internal one to the team. Like, the question's been asked, right? Like they clearly that's the best I've seen Jacobs throw and skip and play since their Olympic run. Right. Like with, especially with Mark, but even it carried over the next week, right. He didn't win the next week, but, uh, he's still playing really, really well. And you got to wonder if maybe the shelf life for team Jacobs with fry at third is kind of recent is expiry date, right. It's kind of the end of the run run for that. Uh, And you got to wonder if that question being asked externally by like a lot of people in the media and a lot of curling fans puts pressure on the team. And then you got to wonder if like Fry certainly saw this and that might make him a little bit uncomfortable too. So you got to wonder if that throws off the team dynamic as well. So, in a certain sense, Fry's going to face kind of like double pressure. One is coming back after being in a bad news story. So, how's he going to handle all those questions? And then on top of that, if they don't perform well when he comes back, what's that going to do for the team going forward? That's going to be the
0: narrative. I'm not sure. I, I think the one team that that team, the one thing that that team has going for it is they now are working with Adam Kingsbury, and that I mean his job is getting things right between your ears, and that was the number one thing that he did for home in the last quad. So him working with that team. I think it's kind of a, a game changer for them. It's almost like that was an inspired ha- an inspired uh, hire. Like they knew that something like this was going to happen almost. I mean, I'm sure that they didn't, but it just seems too perfect that they bring him into the fold and then something like this that's going to test them uh, occurs.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's good to have him there, but I, I do wonder if they start thinking about moving on. It's not... I mean you could say that it's Adam Kingsbury helping to, helping to guide a team through crisis that's one way you can read it but there there's also that question's got to be asked that Adam Kingsbury is working with them all throughout the season it's only when fry goes away and somebody else comes in that team really starts to catch fire and that that does kind of raise questions in my mind
0: well we'll find out pretty quick they've got they have the they have the slam in Mid January, and then they go to Northern Ontario Playdowns, where their biggest competition is just is Tanner Horgan, who just aged out of juniors um, and is pro. Uh, went with them to the Briar, I think last year they brought him on, uh, brought they brought him along as their alternate, so he kind of got a sense for what that tournament's like. So that'll be that'll be fun to see. It's uh, you know a young team trying to dethrone uh, the Olympic champions there in the Northern Ontario Playdowns.
1: Yeah, that'll be cool. I, I don't think Tanner's there yet, uh, but uh, I think they'll put on a show. It, it's probably going to be Jacobs, Horgan again in the final, but I still don't think uh, Horgan's quite ready to knock off the champs.
0: And internationally, Scotland's playdowns got more interesting as we saw Ross Patterson break, break through and and win a slam, not just winning winning a slam, but beating Bruce Mowat in the final. So... You know, Mowat won his first Slam at this same tournament last year, and now Patterson's broken through and, and gotten a big win. What do you think of that team? Have you seen that team up close and personal? Any? And uh, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen at Scotland's uh, playdowns for Worlds? Now that you have Mowat and Patterson, who both have Slam wins under the be- under their belts, Mowat, who's been to a playoffs at of Worlds, who's won a Euros. And then you have Glenn Muirhead and Kyle Smith playing together and Kyle Smith's uh, Olympic experience. So you have three teams that have all performed at a very high level um, now in Scotland on the men's side.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think th- that'll be interesting. It's kind it's good for Scottish curling. I think uh, there was a bit of a contraction with the elite teams, I think, last cycle. And so now it's good to see... Three good teams kind of in or just on the cusp of that top twenty, right? So uh basically three full-time teams. I think well, it's still the slight favorite when it comes down to Scottish Nationals, but certainly Patterson and Mearhead are are gonna make some noise. And certainly either of them is capable of pulling off an upset uh on the big day, so to speak. So That's actually really good long-term for for the next Olympic cycle, right? That you have three teams that can all go at it with each other, but also are capable of going into events like slams and taking on the best teams in the world and winning. So uh, I'd still put Mao at slight favorite for Scottish men's this year, but I would not be surprised if either Patterson or Muirhead uh, ended up winning there.
0: (sighs) And that one will be February 9th through sixteenth. It'll be the same time as the U.S. Championships, the Swiss Championships, the Japanese Championships, uh, and the Scottish Championships will all be that same week. With the Scottish Championship taking place out in Perth. How's that? Uh, how's that facility? Have you curled there?
1: Yeah, it's it's all right. It's it's a bit weird. Like I think. I think one of the things that would probably surprise most North American listeners is that the curling facilities in Scotland actually aren't that great. And Scotland's the home of curling. Like most facilities don't have great viewing areas and Perth's kind of one of them. Like there's only, only about a third of the rink has like a little viewing deck from the second floor lounge. It's, it's actually, and this is actually really weird is the facility shares, uh, it's building with a lawn bowling center, which is actually the national lawn bowling championship thing. They film the Scottish nationals there. And so if you go into that building, to my mind, it's the Perth masters, the Perth ladies home of the Perth super league, lots of great curlers come out of there, but in the building itself, it's all lawn bowling all the time. It's like, that's awesome. So yeah, it's, it gives you a sense like lawn bowling is a lot bigger sport in this country in terms of participation. So the curling is, the rink is basically 50/50 shared between curling and ice skating, so you got to kind of if you want to book practice ice you got to call and make sure there's not skaters just going around the tracks, but they just flip it they flip it from skating to curling back and forth throughout the week. So it's not a curling only facility, but they have great ice makers there and the the ice is normally really fast, so it's kind of one of the preferred places to play competitive curling in Scotland, so that's why they make it uh, the destination for the championship so often.
0: And then f- finally on the women's side of things, I think one of the things to watch is actually the U S championships. Cause you have two teams that have kind of been inconsistent with team Roth and team Sinclair. They've, they've gone to the slams. They've, they've done okay. Um, but neither is really consistently put together great weeks and I think that that tournament is a lot more wide open than this year This year than it has been in recent years. I think you've got four teams that could win it. Obviously the two bigger high performance teams in Roth and Sinclair and then Corey Christensen's team since adding Vicky Persinger at the beginning of this year has started to play really well. I think they've got a chance and then The friend of the podcast, Stephanie Sineker, her team went out, finished fourth in the order of merit, got an automatic qualifier spot, challenged themselves by playing in Ontario a bunch, got the $5,000 bonus for being the highest ranked non-high performance team, uh, and most importantly, earned enough points on tour that if they win – the U S championships, they do qualify and would be team USA in world. So I think you've got four teams that are pretty solid. Obviously the Roth and Sinclair teams are the favorites in that tournament, but I think it's more wide open than it has been recently.
1: Yeah, I I'd, I'd agree with that. I'll be curious. I'm actually really curious to see how Seneca does. I'd like to, I'd li- I mean, they, she, Stephanie said when she was on our show, her goal was to, be top four, get that $5,000, kind of make get make the high performance program pay attention to them. So in a certain sense, they've already achieved all their goals for the season, so they're playing with with house money, so to speak. But I think there's a chance for them to, to go to U.S. Women's Nationals, make playoffs, and then once you're in the, the elimination stage of the tournament, uh, who knows what happens, right? So I'll be kind of watching them to see if they can take that next step And then I'm curious to see if either like out of Roth and Sinclair, which of those teams kind of stabilizes first and starts uh, performing to their full potential. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Both those teams dealing with having to juggle their lineups, the Roth team, you know, Tabitha Peterson plays a lot of mixed doubles. So they've, they've they've had to juggle their lineup there. Island giving um, her the, they just had a, they just had a child. So she hasn't been available really since the beginning of the year. They played in Curling Night in America at the beginning of the year with Eileen and then she took a step away from the team to have her child. the Sinclair team dealing with the same thing her third Alex Carlson uh same thing they're expecting so they've worked in Taylor and Sarah Anderson into that team, and that you know again, it's been kind of a learning curve uh having those two having those two on the sa- on on the team and then Sarah Anderson also plays a lot of mixed doubles so you know they've been having to juggle lineups and again it'll be it'll be wh- yeah exactly which one finds their form that week
1: yeah yeah i definitely agree with that so i'm kind of curious to see how that that all plays out uh and it's you know early early days still on the quad so we could see the high performance program make some changes after that as they've been known to do
0: Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it'll happen. You know, I think you had two solid teams after last year, and they, for a variety of reasons, I guess, made juggled some lineups. Uh, I Presumably, I mean, I don't know anything. I don't know any background on it, but my guess was to kind of even things up and possibly have three good teams. And I think Corey Christensen and Vicky Persinger playing together has been has been really good for that team. So it would not surprise me at all to see that team come away with it uh, in Kalamazoo either.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think the top four all have a shot this year. So I'll, it'll be kind of interesting to see how the women's side plays out.
0: And as I said earlier, the U.S. Championships, uh, that same weekend in mid-February, February 9th through 16th, this time in Kalamazoo, Michigan, returning to Kalamazoo. Uh, it would also be interesting to see how much of that tournament is going to be on NBCSN and Olympic ch- and the Olympic Channel? Uh, we know TSN will be there again. You know, when I first got into this, st- when I first started playing this sport, it was always great. TSN was the only place that you could see the U.S. Curling Championships, and things have kind of grown. And some of those games are shown live now. But we know TSN will be there all week to. Uh, to give you great coverage of that tournament. So it'll also be cool to see, apparently they've, uh, they're also going to show the mixed doubles championship this year. So more USA curling available, uh, at least on webcast. And before we get to that point, right up at the new year, January 3rd through 6th of the two challenge rounds. So we'll be able, we will, By January 6th, we will know the full fields for the U.S. Curling National Championships. And at that same time, our very own Professor of Peel will be the bench coach for the English men's team playing in the World Junior Bees playdown in Loya, Finland. Jonathan, this tournament is returning back to Finland. I know you were there last year. Can you give us an idea of how does World Junior Bees work What teams are there? Why is this tournament in Finland all the time? And uh, (laughs) what?
1: It's not just Finland. It's like I joke that it looks. It's not quite that bad. (laughs) I get in trouble for the WCF, but I joke that it looks a bit like a prison camp. It's not. It's not that at all. It's actually a relatively nice kind of outdoor sports center. But it's about an hour's drive out of Helsinki, in the middle of the woods, and. there's nothing else around there besides the sports center it's a it's a forty five minute walk down to the highway where there's like a giant uh, a gas station kind of service center complex where you can buy some food at a little grocery store, have a coffee at the restaurant. but that's about it unless you have a car, which our association unfortunately has no money, so we don't get a car. so it's a week kind of stuck in a stuck in a camp. <laughs> That's got this is the equivalent.
0: This is the curling equivalent of Rocky going to Siberia to train.
1: It, it does, and it's pretty like we're not too far from Russia, like you can't quite see Russia from your window, <laughs> but it's Russian esque. So it does have this kind of rustic, Nordic. My first time there, it was like minus 25, like all week. Last year, it was about zero, so it was a bit more tolerable. And it's all these like wood cabins. in the woods there's a lake that you can kind of walk around there is one of the cool features is there's a legit sauna like a legit scandinavian outdoor sauna you can hit which is especially when it's cold outside pretty pleasant uh there's a gym there's a pool so there's there's stuff to do but it's you're kind of in this facility uh for a week (laughs) and there's a lot of curling going on so it's uh it's got its own challenges in terms of how it works so the bee pool it's the same thing as that we were talking about in our, in our Euros preview podcast. Like for most of the world, curling, r- curling runs on a promotion relegation system, which is kind of funny when they, they brought promotion relegation to the Briar and Scotties that caused the national outcry. But globally, for a lot of the smaller countries, they're stuck in, you know, a lower tier and they've got to win their way up to play in the high tier, right? So junior men's and junior women's are both 10 team tournaments at the end of that year, the the team that finishes in the bottom three, they, those three teams all get relegated back to the B pool. And the B pool is open to any national assembly, national organization or member member association of the world curling federation. If they want to put uh, a junior team in. And so the skill level is really broad. Like, uh, Sometimes you see like a brand new country emerge. They've got a bunch of 12 and 13-year-olds who are just figuring out the game. And so they're not that strong. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got fully funded national programs. So like we, we keep drawing China in our pool. And I remember it was like two years ago. Uh, we had like an 8 a.m. game. We're in the arena. <laughs> And uh, there's nobody in the arena, but the Chinese delegation have a camera on us. Their two coaches and their team are all watching and scouting us for their like 2 (laughs) PM game against us. And they they came with like a delegation of like six or seven people, like translators, physiotherapists, like two coaches on the bench cameras, some guy up in the stands doing, I don't know what it was a bit like, it's a bit of a psych out and it's me basically with my iPad and, and notebook (laughs) sitting up on the bench for team England. So the resources are really different from country to country. The skill levels are really kind of varied, but it's really interesting to see. I I really like seeing the new emerging countries. Like to me, it's kind of interesting. So you can see Kazakhstan this year. We got Chinese Taipei, which is the official international name for Taiwan. Uh, So international sports name for Taiwan. So we got, we got the Taiwanese team or Chinese Taipei team, depending on your preference uh, in the pool. So uh, last year, we played Hong Kong, which is like a new emerging country in the Asia Pacific. Uh, you know, this Turkey's kind of, interestingly enough, has been a power lately in the World Junior Bs, but some of their players have aged out. So that's the other interesting feature is that a country can be surprisingly good, even if they're not a strong curling country. If they've got especially a back end that's been at this event several years, gotten good coaching, and they're kind of in that peaking phase of 18 to 21, like a country you would nor- wouldn't normally think of as being a curling power can actually be pretty strong in the bee pool at the world Junior you your bees. Uh, are there
0: any countries like that that we
1: should watch out for
0: uh, as we're checking? I'm Is this going to be on the World Curling Federation YouTube? Do you have any idea or are we just going to have to check line scores?
1: So I won't know until I get there last few years, what they've done is they've put uh, a video stream without announcers and they just declare one sheet, the video stream sheet. And so normally we get one game on that sheet. Uh, And one of the things that's kind of funny is they'll stream that game. Like there's like a, the, the curling's actually in an arena that's maybe 200 meters away from the main facility and in the main facility, there's a large kind of dining area, but there's also a lounge. They've got the two giant big screen TVs, and they normally screen the the curling match on that TV, and it's actually the better viewing venue. So, because the the sight lines aren't that great in the ice hockey arena, so that also gets web streamed, but it's normally with no commentators, and the video quality is uh, not the best, but about TESN level, I'd say, maybe maybe a little worse than TESN, so. Uh, it's not full world curling TV or hasn't been in the past but that might change I don't I don't quite know if they're if they're gonna make that that adjustment for for this year but that's how it's been historically
0: all right so on your side the teams that got relegated last year that were that that played in world Juniors were China Korea and Russia and it looks like all three of those teams are new so I guess they're kids from, well, I mean, I guess they're not really kids, right? This is an under 21 tournament. They're getting to the point where they're not kids.
1: Yeah, it's an under 21 tournament. So you you do and can have teams that vary in age from 12, 13 to 21. So that's, it's not, there's no under 18 in international curling. So there's not, or there's no Bantam, which in Canada is like 16 and under. So there's not age progression international curling. So it's just kind of like they throw the 13 year olds in against the 21 year olds, uh, and that's actually how it was when I was gro- – that's how it was when I was growing up. So I kind of like the old school feel of it. And, you know, when I was 13, 14, I got my butt kicked by, uh, by some good 19 and 20-year-olds. And uh, that's how you learn. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm a bit hard, hard-nosed that way. But, yeah, so some countries I think do drop back when their top players age out. But I, I think China has got a deep enough program that I'm not expecting a regression mm-hmm. there. Uh, If you're looking for kind of a team. So what I normally am looking for is teams that are right at that have a lot of world junior B experience and their team, the core of their team is at that aging out age. Like it's either their, their last or second to last spiel. That's normally when those teams peak obviously. And so Spain they're from our pool this year. And so they're obviously kind of, they, they lost out in the bronze medal game last year, which is also the promotion game. So, we were already right on the cusp. They bring back half their team. Uh, they get a lot of good coaching. They travel to Canada a fair bit for coaching. So that's a team that you would not think of as being a world-curling power, but they're actually uh, a fairly strong team. So they're definitely one to watch for.
0: As we the the kids that we mentioned earlier, uh, Go Aoki and Kei Kamada from Japan, they're back. That team... Last year World Junior B's went undefeated in their pool and then lost their first game of the playoff in the quarterfinals. They did not have a chance uh, to advance to the regular World Junior Championships, but that team has their skip and their vice skip back. And both of them now have, amaz- amazingly, they've played in a World Championships, but not a World Junior Championship, even though they are of junior age, so... That's a team to watch. Uh, Another team that made quarterfinals last year that has the majority of their team back and has some international experience is New Zealand. Their their skip and their vice skip both played on the New Zealand team that went to PACCs. So those two guys are going to participate in this tournament, and then they're going to fly to New Zealand and play in the world qualifying event that is... Being held in New Zealand later in January. Um, are there any other countries or how much do you know about the, the women's side? Are there any, any countries on the women's side that are routinely good that maybe we haven't heard of or maybe that we don't, don't expect to be consistently good?
1: Well, I think, so the interesting thing is Scotland, Scottish women were relegated and they've been relegated two out of the last four years. So the last time it happened, Sophie Jackson was skipping the team and she got relegated. Uh, she then, I called the Sophie Jackson <laughs> revenge to her because the next year her team went out and just kind of hit every single junior spiel and hit a lot of the adult women's spiels in the autumn, got like top level coaching from British curling and they just destroyed, they just kind of rolled right through the, the B pool then they were throwing tick shots uh in the second end of the the B pool final they were just like not they came to play and they weren't messing around kind of thing uh so in a certain sense Scotland's kind of probably your favorite on the women's side to kind of get back up but Beth Farmer's not as experienced as a team as Sophie Jackson is not in the the team GB performance program as Sophie Jackson's team was so they do get kind of the next tier down which is like the scottish national academy coaching so they do get good coaching but might not be as easy a path for them i think you know russia and china are the perennial powers i'd say in terms of they have fully funded national programs uh and so they that kind of normally translates into consistently strong performances um I don't know about it. So there's a lot of stuff where I just don't know about the teams. Like They're just totally new teams to me. So like Italy, we don't even know who they are yet, right? Hungary has in the past been quite good, but I don't know this new Hungarian women's team. Uh, Denmark's always kind of in it, I'd say. They're always kind of a team that never kind of is at the bottom of the table in their pool, always kind of contending for playoff spot, but perhaps not quite strong enough to go up, but some, some years does and some years doesn't. So, you know, it's kind of variable, but, uh, I think if if I'm just going off kind of the countries, probably looking at Russia, China, and Scotland as being the three strong favorites, but you never know. How's your team going to (laughs) do? That's
0: tough. I don't, you are, and you are coaching, you are coaching the team England men, uh, with, uh, team Sugden, who's been you've taken them to a couple of junior spiels. So how are they going to do here uh, here at the big show? And keep in mind they may be they listening may be listening. To
1: this. i I, as a coach hate making predictions. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Like one is I never want a team that I coach to go out on the ice playing with expectations, either expectations to win or expectations to lose. I want them just to go out and play their game. I think if you go out thinking you're going to win, then you kind of ease off a bit, and you can get yourself in trouble real fast. And if I think if you go out expecting to lose, then you're probably already beat. So, you know, my attitude is
0: all right. So, give us give us an idea. What's you know, I'm not asking you to make a a prediction on them, but just what's what's their? How do you expect them to? perform and what's their form been like?
1: I mean, their form has been pretty good. So they just, they were up in a Scottish spiel in Lockerbie uh, two weeks ago and did really well. They, they lost on last shot to the team in the semifinal to the team that ended up winning the whole thing. And uh, they, they ended up winning the three, four game uh, pretty comfortably actually. So they finished third in that spiel. And it's like a Scottish level junior bond spiel, had all the scottish teams in there except for Ross White who's kind of their performance team so they're playing they're playing at a level that would let them a play in the scottish national junior men's which is you know tra- traditionally an a pool team and playing against teams that you'd expect to to be cont- competing for the playoffs at that level so yeah. If they play like that, they'll, they'll make some noise uh, in the B pool. Right. But junior curling's a bit crazy. Like the, the variance is really high. Like I, I track the stats from game to game for my team and yeah, you can see players make 20, 30 point swings in their shooting percentages, right? One game, they come out, they're on fire. The next game not so hot. So, you know, that's one of the big things. Uh, and then, so that's part of it. Part of it's just the tactics at a junior level aren't quite there yet. Like they're in the adult game and that can also lead to some pretty wild outcomes. And I think the third thing is that the third new factor this year is it's our first year with the five rock free guard zone. And that, that creates a lot of interesting scenarios, especially at the junior level. Right? So there's there's certainly for the men the, the slam levels you've noticed difference in tactics like when you drop the shooting percentages 15 20 points and you drop the tactical knowledge by you know 10 to 15 years of experience it's a lot junkier game and it can lead to crazy swings like there was one game we were playing uh one game we were playing earlier in the year up in Brayhead and it was like First team scored three with hammer, then got a force. Then the other team stole four, right? It was like, it was like totally like crazy, like four point swings and like basically eight points scored in three ends. And the, the game kind of kept rolling like that. You, you could have like massive, massive, uh, massive swings in outcome uh, more so than in tradition, in kind of adult kind of elite level curling. So I think the five rock free guard zone is going to change things a lot. And I think that's, I think the teams that kind of get a good handle on some of the tactical nuances with the five rock free guard zone are going to do some surprising results here. I think that's the other thing to kind of factor in that they like the tactical knowledge across associations is uneven, you know? So I, I do think that as a coach coming from kind of a Canadian background, not to be arrogant about it, but there's times where I've been on the bench and I've seen the coach go out and make a call against us. and I'm like, why did you do that? You just gave us the end. Like not not all the time, but there certainly are ways you can pick up points just off like tactical errors, either by the players or even by the coaches, which in, in Canadian curling just wouldn't happen at a provincial level or up, I don't think.
0: Are there any coaches in this tournament that we may have heard of before?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's... Well, I don't know if you would have heard of. Like a few years ago, Soren Gran was there. Uh, like So often what will happen is the named the kind of what I'd call like full-time professional elite coaches. So the Soren Grands of the world, the Dan Raphaels, like they may not be the team's bench coach, but they might be there as the head coach for the association. So Soren Grand a few years ago was there coaching Russia. He wasn't coaching the team, but he was coaching the coaches. There's a, there's a coach named Brad Askew, who's kind of also another one of these kind of internationally paid coaches. He's he's hired by the Czech Republic right now. He used to work with, um, Scottish curling, so he's kind of one of these guys. Canadian guy also goes from country to country and kind of coach, he's there as the head coach, also not as the bench coach. Um Sherry Liebrand, who's kind of who coaches Yaps team, is often there helping support the Dutch team. So a lot of the the national teams that punch through to the world level or Olympic qualifying, those association coaches if their countries are in the B pool are there to try to help develop the next generation too. So yeah, there's, there's actually a lot of kind of big name coaches there.
0: So what are you going to be doing during this tournament? I guess we haven't, I guess we haven't had a professor of peel segment in a while. So you want to do one on bench coaching and let everyone know what on earth you're going to be doing during this tournament and what you do other than go out on the ice and tell your tell your kids how to get out of trouble when they make a mess of an end.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, (laughs) like, that's basically what it is. I mean, so most people when they're watching on TV, right, what they see the bench coach do if they ever see them is come out in, you know, a tactical situation. It's normally used as a tactical timeout. It doesn't have to be, but most teams use it that way. And at the junior level, it's normally we're in trouble here. What do we do? It's kind of, you know, I'd say nine times out of 10. That's what uh, that's what I'm called out on the ice to do. Uh, and in the, one of the kind of subtle rule differences is in Canada, teams at the junior level get two time notes and the coach can signal from the bench. And you're also allowed to have coach-player interaction in between ends. Internationally, there's no coach-player interaction between ends. The teams only get one timeout, and the players have to call it, which sometimes is funny because often – by the time I'm called out on the ice, the mistake that got the team in that mess was three, four shots ago. And so it often is kind of damage limitation as I'm basically there to give them advice on how to get out of the jam and then rebound the next end. So that's, that's that part of it. But actually, you know, I think what you don't see is how long the games are actually like, um, so, if you're playing in what I'll call like a major event, by which I simply mean an event which has umpires, time clocks in some kind of national association or international association leading to some big championship, uh, you, every single game has a practice. It's normally nine minutes per team beforehand. Then it's after the practice, the teams each throw their last stone draw. So, it's two last stone draws. So, each team's That part takes about 14, 15 minutes each per team. So about a half hour before the game starts, the game actually starts, so to speak, right? You've got to be on the ice ready for your pregame practice. If the other team throws first, you still got to be around there waiting because the umps want to make sure everyone's there to start. Um, There's a bit of head games there, right? If you're throwing second, you want to see what the other team did for for their LSD. So there's a bit of like advantage or perhaps disadvantage depending on when you throw. So if you back it up from 30 minutes before, then you've got to do your warmups and uh, kind of get changed, get to the venue. So minimum, I'd say an hour beforehand, we're at the rink, even though it's only a five minute walk from our hotel hotel room. So we normally aim to get there about an hour beforehand, get changed, do the warmups. If you back it up even further, but then we normally do a pregame meeting, maybe an hour before that. So even if we have a one game day, you're looking at four hours, four to five hours, kind of just baked into playing in that game. So it's a lot more demanding in terms of your time and also your stress levels, obviously. So a lot of what the bench coach does is just there to support the team, right? So I normally lead them to the pregame practice, but pregame talk beforehand. And we normally kind of just go over tactical approaches, little things we want to work on. I normally give each player on the team kind of what I call a performance goal, like a specific thing they're going to work on. Not, nothing vague, like, you know, often people say, well, I want to shoot well, I want to make more shots than the other team. And to my mind, that's too vague. So it's normally things like, you know, make sure we're communicating three times the weight all the way down the ice. Uh, Make sure we're taking split times of the other team's throws to make sure we're kind of constantly reading the ice if we're front end if it's a skip like make sure you're communicating what the tolerance is or what the plan b is on a shot to the team or you, you just kind of set little goals like that and kind of focusing on the little things i found if you got a team focusing on doing all the little things right that normally translates into to good results right cuz there's there's not much you can do as a bench coach to tweak technique mid tournament and i think getting a team to think about the technical parts of their delivery mid game is not great. Like unless there's a serious, serious delivery fault that we need to address with like a quick bandage, there's not much time to, to tear a delivery down and rebuild it by this point in the season. So it's really kind of working on what you've got, figuring out what your tactics are, given who your opponent is and what the ice conditions are, and then making sure the team dynamics are on, making sure everyone's getting together, getting along well, communicating clearly and supporting each other. As they need so that's that's kind of part what the bench coach does and then apart from that it's just troubleshooter like uh you know i've had stuff like a broom is broken five minutes before a game begins and you got to figure out especially with the new brush rules there's a whole bunch of details you got to do with that uh interacting with the ice techs and the umpires so it's i think it's often a good idea to get to know the ice technicians well and i have found that if I talk to the ice technicians, show them I know a little bit about how to read ice and can kind of appreciate what they're doing. They'll often just answer any questions I have or, you know, feed me a little information. I think they're willing to do it to any player in the competition. Like they're, it's not like proprietary secrets, but it's always good to get to know the ice tech and, and know what they're saying. I think it's good to know the, get to know the umpires too. Right. Cause If there's an issue on the ice, the umpires normally alert alert the coach before they alert the players, just to let you know what the issue is, why they're going to stop the clock, that kind of stuff. Uh, Kind of given all our clock gate stuff lately, uh, (laughs) one thing I've learned over the years actually as a bench coach, I've got to watch the clock because there are timing mistakes all the time. And so... If I catch a timing error, I, I alert the, the umps right away. Like that's, it's kind of a little thing that, that I've kind of picked up over the year. Right. So there's a lot of that. And then it's simple things like mid, mid, we, we got a break at the fourth end. So I do like, uh, I'm in charge of the snacks. So I got to this. We don't have a fifth. So it's normally me who brings the snacks out onto the ice. Sometimes I have a few of the snacks, uh, beforehand
0: <laughs> what's your what what is your team's preferences on oh, snacks God, they're like
1: the worst diet ever <laughs> i mean their idea <laughs> of a nutritious meal is a mcdonald's happy meal with a mcflurry or something right so uh like they're they i try to nudge them towards at least having some fruit so maybe oranges or apples that we steal from <laughs> the uh, restaurant during the breakfast uh, or their go-to is actually midget jams which are like a little jelly gelatinous kind of candies which actually aren't that bad if you're gonna snack on candy but also aren't that great Isn't from it? a performance perspective Wait, is it like a gummy bear what is what are these things uh, it's like a it's basically a gummy bear but not shaped as a bear shaped like a little dot like you know a little mini okay jewel thing multi-flavored that's their that's their go-to jam so you know all right like when I'm playing, my fifth end breaks a protein bar. Like I either have half or all of a protein bar, just the so it's like semi nutritious but quick to eat.
0: How much of what you have to do is because you're involved with a national team playing, you know, playing under a national association banner? Like how much of this did you experience when you were playing in juniors?
1: It was pretty well. It depends what like I so I played provincials and it wasn't as big a deal back then. Like there wasn't a last stone draw. This is like back in the nineties. There was a little bit of pregame practice, but I think it was like four minutes or something. And uh, like it wasn't, there wasn't as much stuff attached to it. There were time clocks, there were timeouts, there was a halftime break. So all that was kind of there back then. But a lot of it's become kind of more since the curling rules have become more complicated. So that's a bit different. I mean, I think growing up, it was a lot more casual. Uh, Like nobody had certifications. It was a lot more, it was a lot more like friendly people at the curling club who were either kind of competitive curlers past their prime or parents who were kind of willing to take a team and kind of give them advice. And so it was a lot more kind of friendly advice. I think even back then, like drills weren't that sophisticated. Now there's, you know, you can find pretty sophisticated drill manuals out there. lot of the technical knowledge wasn't that sophisticated. So it's definitely gotten more nuanced, a lot more to it. I think the big thing that's different when you shift like an international venue is there's a lot of other logistics that kind of fall on my lap. So like, it's not only me, like the rink manager, uh, Tracy Brown, she does a lot of the kind of travel planning and John Brown, who's from the, the National Association also handles and books the tickets. But all of these things got to be done. Like, there's tons of forms we got to fill out months in advance. We got to do like uh, doping control forms. It's a thing called a the- uh, therapeutic use exemption. So, if any of the kids are on kind of asthma inhalers or anything else that might have a, a substance in it that's on un- that's controlled, you've got to go to the doctor and get uh, like a note that says why they're using it and make sure the dosage is not uh, over the, the threshold. So, there's a lot of like logistics like that, and then. I think the other thing is things always go wrong. That's the one thing I've learned now in my four years. Like like three years ago, our flight out of Gatwick was delayed. We got to uh, we got to uh, we got to stay, we were in Sweden that year, so we got to the airport in Sweden, and we'd missed our next flight. And then they didn't have any tickets on the next flight, and so basically, it kind of fell on me to rapidly figure out how to get us to Ulsterson, Sweden. And kind of careful negotiations with an airline. It's tricky to kind of say, "Look, we've got twelve people here who all need to get on a plane." It's not like one. Per- if it's one person, I'm traveling solo and I miss a plane. Getting one ticket's easy. Getting tickets for twelve people and getting them there by the start of the competition was a bit of a headache. So that's that's kind of a problem that comes up. You know, we've had. How'd you get it done? just basically explained to the the thing and you had to kind of go, you know, ask your manager, ask your manager, explain the situation. And then they managed to find space for us on a flight, but it, it cost us a fair bit, but thankfully travel insurance kind of covered the late booking fees. So we went, went with a different airline in the end. Um, so that was kind of tricky. Uh, you know, I've, you have other things that happen. Like I, I'm not a great sewer, but one of our players, you know, ripped his pants, ripped his trousers. So, <laughs> It's like, how do you deal with that? Uh, You know, curling broom, breaking five minutes before uh, a game. And uh, like there's the the brush rules have pretty serious consequences. So you got to take the player over to the umpire, explain the situation and see what the options are uh, because you can't swap out brooms anymore. So yeah, that was kind of a negotiation there too.
0: I guess to wrap it up, I guess, what's the, you know, what's the difference between what you're having to do as a bench coach for a junior team versus what you would do if you were a bench coach for a, you know, an established team that's, that's playing on tour?
1: I think, so that's going to vary from team to team, right? And I think some of the teams look for basically a more adult version of what I do. Right. So they they get like a certified level three or four coach. They're there to help with like the full package, like kind of pregame debrief, postgame, et cetera. But other teams, I think, use that bench coach role more as a team manager role, like in terms of someone's going to handle all the logistics possible for that team. So the team can just show up at the venue and play. And, you know, some of the high level teams never even bother to call their coach out for a timeout. Right. They don't, you know, they just. They're calling a timeout on TV it's just to stop the clock and talk amongst them. So they don't really need the tactical help. I think I
0: saw I think I saw one of the teams said that the only reason that they had a coach to begin with was the timeout clock doesn't start until the coach gets down to ice level and sometimes it takes a little bit especially at the WCF events where the coach is up high and has to go down some stairs and get down to ice level so they only had a coach so that they could get that extra few seconds during their timeout.
1: Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. That's like one of the, I call it a, not so much a dirty trick, but it's a known trick is uh, coaches might slow walk it. <laughs> it's kind of like like one of the bit of advice I got is like the instinct as a coach when you're starting out is get down to the ice level as quickly as possible, but actually there's something called like walking time. And so they measure how long it takes to get from the furthest point of the bench down to ice level. They keep tweaking that rule every single year. So uh, the last few years, it's basically they factored in all of walking time plus the minute. So actually you have a pretty long time for a coaching interaction there. So uh, it's, it's an interesting issue because I think every single time you put in some new rule, someone's going to figure out a way to exploit it. And so one way that coaches have exploited the walking time rule is they slow walk it to make sure the team gets the maximum amount of walking time possible to maximize thinking time possible to talk, talk through the scenario. I think with juniors is a bit different, right? Like really when they're calling for a timeout, they actually want the input. And so they normally come to me, Hey, what do we do here? But one of the things we've built into our team is what do we do here? But what are we going to do in the next end? So we always want, so we want to maximize the timeout to make sure that we think through what situation we're in now, which normally when I'm calling the ice, it's not great but then what are we going to do if it doesn't go well? And what are we going to do if it does go well? Right. So it's kind of getting them to think through, you know, the different situations, like, you know, what's good in terms of win expectancy versus not good in terms of win expectancy. So a lot of time kind of thinking through that and communicating that information. And then sometimes I've got a, I've got to kind of calm them down, right? That, like if things aren't going well, it's getting them refocused not on what's happened to lead to the timeout, but what can you do right now going forward to still win the game.
0: Yeah, and along those lines I think, I think there was a team at the Scotties last year that had Gunner as their as their as their bench coach and you know, he's the one who knows you know, he's the poker player. He knows what the percentages are. He knows what this what this shot does to his winning percentage. And he was the one that would go out and say, okay, the percentages say you want to be up one with or you know the percentages say you want to be you want to have hammer in the last end. So he would kind of direct where they were playing based on what what the outcome would would do to their win expectancy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's that's an important thing to keep in mind that I think in the course of a game, in the heat of battle, a team can lose sight of the goal. And it could be win expectancy. That's like an important thing to keep in, in mind. It could also be, let's say you're you're often when you're called out, the team's not in the best position. So just reminding them, hey, all we have to do to win this game is, you know, score one here, steal next end and we win or whatever, whatever the most viable path is, like keep them locked in on what the goal is, right? Or if they're way down, you know, sometimes my line is, look, you, you may as well be really aggressive now if you're way down and out of it and shake early, right? Like one of my lines, you may as well give up eight here if you're swinging for a three, then to kind of keep giving up one, one, one if you're down three already, right? Like, like let them know when the time mm-hmm. is to take maximum risk and, and then to shake hands if it's not working that day. So there's a lot of that. Uh, I think one of my favorite coach interactions was, do you remember the Briar final with, with Pat Simmons and Johnny Mo kind of a few years back? Yeah, and the the extra end, right? They call a timeout, and out comes Earl Morris, right? They had Earl Morris, the bench coach, right? And he's—I remember some people like actually making snark about what Earl Morris said, but to me, it was brilliant. He just said, "What do you need to do here so you have a shot?" Like that—that's all. He didn't tell them what to do. He just reminded them that's the only thing you've got to think about. Like he knew this is a high-stress situation. Think about what answer. If you can tell me the answer to that question, then then you kind of solved it, right? Because you know Earl Morris probably knows what the answer is, but he didn't want to tell them because he also knows that Pat Simmons and, and John Morris are kind of you know two of the best strategists out there. So it's not like they didn't know. He recognized in that moment that his job as coach was to get them thinking the right way. And as long as they did that, they'd get the result. And I actually think that was a, a case of a timeout, not being a case of I'm going to tell you the answer, but I'm going to make sure you're thinking the right way so you make the right decision under stress right? Because it's a high stress situation. And we all know in high stress situations, people make bad choices. So he saw his job there, not as giving them the answer, but as helping them think like in the proper processes to get to the right answer.
0: And then the the reverse of that, one of the stories that I heard them say during, I think it was a briar a few years ago, but they were talking about Marcel Rock coaching the Chinese team and one of the stories they told was when he first started with that team, when they would call a timeout and bring him out there. Um, and obviously they'd make a, me- they would make a mess of an end. Uh, they would call Marcel Rock out there and he would say, which so- which shot got you in trouble? And if they couldn't answer the question, he would turn around
1: and walk away. <laughs> I think, I think that's, wow. I like that. Answer. <laughs> I think, In terms of the many hours of coaching theory I've done, that's not what we call positive coaching. (laughs) (laughs) Like one of the rules of thumb is that you're supposed to give, especially when you're working with juniors, you're supposed to give five pieces of positive feedback for one piece of negative feedback. That's just based on psychology that, you know, think about it at work. If your boss tells you all the time, you suck, you suck, you suck eventually you're going to hate your boss, right? So you want to kind of be as positive as possible, keep people thinking properly, and then you can kind of work the, the criticism in there uh, like when necessary. But, you know, it's a funny story because it does kind of put the onus on the players to figure out what the problem is. And like I like I said before, often when a timeout is called, the mistake was made three, four shots ago, right? And then it's, it's not... It's not like it's basically picking the least bad option that'll do the least damage, or you know. Sometimes I've, I've gone out there and said we've had, got hammer, and I'm like, well, you know, make sure you only give up a steal of two here, <laughs> right? Which in that case, like that, that's that's what kind of trouble we're in. But I'm like, if you only give up a steal of two, we're down one with hammer. That's a lot better than giving up a steal of five, which is what is looking like right now, right? So that's that's yeah. definitely happened, and uh, you know, that's that's part of coaching too is kind of like making sure the team. Because I think so much teams get locked in to score, score, score. And, you know, sometimes the force is great. But sometimes even giving up one, as long as it lets you retain hammer and kind of be in a not bad position, isn't the end of the world. Like, you know, you, you can still give up a steal and still kind of win the game. It's just kind of keeping the team kind of on the positive track. I think... If the team's calling you out because they're in crisis, then you pile it on by saying you're dumb because you didn't make, you know, you don't know what you did to screw up. That to me is not going to get the best result. As funny as a story it is, right? It's probably going to make the team feel worse, right? The the time for the tactical debrief is after the game, right? And that's what what I always do kind of post-game is we kind of go back over the goals, kind of ask what worked, what didn't. You know, sometimes you, you do everything right. You get a you get a bad result because the other skip caught fire and made a couple of pistols, right? So it's kind of like sometimes you got to remind them of that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a team, you know, you play well. And, uh, you know, one of my expressions, I actually swiped it from Lisa Farnell, is good teams will make you pay, right? That you may have got away with it here, but you play a good team and they'll destroy you for that, right? That often you may... You may think you got a steal there but actually if, if a, a good team came along and popped that rock that you stole with you're giving up six which you know a good team's often able to get access to that stone right so there's a lot of kind of like subtle things like that but to my mind the criticism's really done for post game during the game the goal is what can i say because i only get two minutes with them right i got like a minute at the beginning minute during their timeout, and then you know, effectively five minutes, but it takes a minute each way to walk there. So a couple of minutes there at the halftime break to talk to them. And if I'm telling them all the things they're doing wrong, that's going to put them in a negative mindset. So really the goal is to be positive, get them focused on what they can do, get them focused on what they can control. All
0: right. Well, good luck to you guys in Finland here at the beginning of the year and Merry Christmas, Jonathan.
1: Yeah. Merry Christmas, Ryan. Go listen to the Pogues. <laughs> we'll see. It may be.
0: It may be Robert Earl Keane. I'll make that decision later. <laughs> uh thank. Hey, thanks for. Uh, thanks for doing this podcast with me, man. It's been a fun year, and uh, looking forward to keeping it up here in two thousand nineteen.
1: Yeah. And thanks. I mean, it's this is actually your idea, and you like you really prompted me to do this. Uh, you know, and, and you actually have like both the journalistic skills and the technical skills to pull it off. And so like I want to thank you for a asking me, but honestly, without you kind of pulling me into this, there's no way I would have done this. So, so thanks a lot for that. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Hey, no problem. And uh, for, for every, um, that you hear me utter during this podcast, just remember for, for everyone that makes it into the podcast, there were eight others that I took care of in post. Uh, <laughs> thank you to everyone uh, who listened, Uh, next show will likely be after Jonathan gets back from Finland and will probably be more of a preview of the continental cup and the world qualifying event that's going to happen in mid January. And we'll hear all about, uh, Jonathan's time in Siberia. Uh, the next big curling events are next week with the U S open of curling. And then you get the USA challenger rounds there at the beginning of January. Those will be on YouTube. The Grand Slam of Curling comes back on January 8th. There's only one U.S. team in that event, and that'll be Nina Roth's team. That's a unique uh, Grand Slam format. It's a triple knockout format, so no pool play there. If you have an idea for a Professor of Peel segment, please send it our way. You can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at curlingpodcast. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, and you may be listening to us on SoundCloud right now. We are on SoundCloud. So please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, We appreciate any feedback that you give us. We appreciate it anytime that that you tell a friend about our podcast. So thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you again real soon.
1: In that you scumbag, you maggot, you cheap, lousy f Happy Christmas, you're all sad, sort thank of, like God it's our love